Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 83. The Leftovers. Last time we followed the Islamic Caliphate through its 8th century developments. Today we look a little closer at the lives of its citizens, in particular the former Roman Christians who Heraclius left behind. Back in 700, you may remember that the situation for many Christians hadn't changed that drastically with the Arabs in charge. The conquerors usually confined themselves to their garrison towns and left the administrative apparatus as they'd found it. Only the top layer of officials were out of a job, and many of them had fled to Byzantium. If you were a Monophysite Christian, or even a low-level bureaucrat, then the arrival of the Arabs might have been a positive development. The Orthodox authorities from Constantinople could no longer persecute you. Your church met freely and openly, and you could conduct your business with far less oversight. The Arabs seemed to be pious enough and largely respected Christian practice and kept their new faith to themselves. So, who are we talking about? We have basically three provinces here. Syria, Palestine and Egypt, all with their own specific experience. Egypt, as you know, was the most decidedly Monophysite place in the Roman Empire. The native Egyptian population, the Copts as they became known, were pretty united as one Christian body against the Council of Chalcedon. The vast majority of Copts lived, as Egyptians had done for millennia, along the banks of the Nile. This meant that their population stretched ever further south away from Alexandria in the north. Increasingly, the Copts would not listen to the patriarchs sent to cow them and instead turned to their own leaders, often monks living in desert hideouts. The arrival of the Arabs strengthened the Coptic identity. With the Roman state gone, the population increasingly identified themselves with their national church. The Coptic Patriarch, like the popes in Rome, began to speak for all of his people to the authorities. The purpose of the church was to maintain itself amidst the Muslim sea and to elaborate the destiny of this special people. 
Like the Byzantines and their iconoclasm, the Copts began to view themselves as God's chosen nation, who needed to look inward to survive a changing world. The Chalcedonian church did not disappear, though. They had always been a minority, but when they had dominated life in Alexandria and other cities in the north, their cause didn't seem hopeless. The invasions had hit this community far harder, first through those who died in battle, then those who left. As you may recall from the narrative, the Byzantines actually retook Alexandria and had to be driven out. The imperial fleet made room for any prominent families who wanted to head back to Constantinople with them. They were not the only ones heading for the exit. Many wealthy people who identified with the empire departed for Africa, Spain, or Italy. Their life was too tied to the Roman world to remain in this new reality. Those that stayed formed the small Greek-speaking community that became known as the Melkite Church. Melkite is a word derived from king or royal, and in this case meaning Vasilefs, the emperor's church. This term had already been used by the Copts to refer to those in Egypt who stuck to the emperor's line at the Council of Chalcedon. The Melkite community, with their own separate patriarch, would continue their lives in the north of the country. In both Palestine and Syria, the situation was similar. Here, the dominant communities of rural peasants who spoke Aramaic or its variant Syriac remained largely monophysite, while the usually Greek-speaking city dwellers remained in Melkite churches. In Palestine, because of the special interest and investment in preserving the holy places, the pro-Chalcedon community was stronger than elsewhere. The Patriarch of Jerusalem had a special place in the province and was quite used to negotiating with Arab governors over their shared interest in the city. To the north in Syria, the situation was more complicated. Obviously, bordering Anatolia, Syria had seen a larger exodus than the other provinces. Many wealthy Romans had followed Heraclius out the door, and even Christian Arabs, like some of the former Ghassanids, crossed the Taurus Mountains too. There was also a far larger population of Arabs in Syria than in the other provinces. For a start, the Syrian desert had been filled with Arab settlers for centuries, and several cities on its borders had prominent Arab populations before the Muslims arrived. Once they did, the combination of desert and pasture encouraged Arabs heading north to settle on Syrian land, and the large exodus of Romans freed up property to exploit. The continuing wars with Byzantium also affected settlement, so that cities like Antioch became base camps filled with soldiers and equipment ready for the campaign season. Damascus, of course, became the Umayyad capital, which naturally encouraged the conquerors to move in. Syria thus became more of a patchwork of settlement. Newly Muslim Arabs rubbed shoulders with Monophysite farmers, while in the coastal cities, Greek speakers carried on fishing and trading as before. The lives of these former Romans began to change more dramatically with the reforms which Abd al-Malik initiated before and after the year 700. The most significant being the demand that all state business now be carried out in Arabic. Up to this point, Greek and 
Coptic had continued to function as they had before. Now, if you wanted to maintain a middle-class career, you had to learn Arabic. This change didn't happen overnight. It took time, and we still have government documents written in other languages deep into the Abbasid era. But from now on, the need to speak the conqueror's language would immerse the indigenous elites in Islamic culture. The popular literature of the day was now accessible. The life of the prophet and his sayings formed the basis of the legal code, and so was worth knowing. In fact, to become part of the elite itself, many began to seek out Arab patrons and took on Arab names. This was a widespread practice, and it's why it becomes difficult to write a coherent history of the ethnicity of the Islamic world. Many people across the caliphate enthusiastically embraced Arabization. But within the histories, their real ethnic origin gets lost, so it can read as if either the Arabs were everywhere or that everyone had converted to Islam whereas the reality was often that Iranian and Syrian men had simply adopted the culture of the conquerors in order to further their careers. For example, in 800, the Melkite bishop of Haran in Syria was a certain Theodore Abu Kura. He wrote in Syriac, Greek and Arabic, but remained a determined Christian. Down in Egypt, documents survive written in Coptic, between minor officials with Arabic names. Are they converts to Islam, or do they remain Christian but with Arab names? We don't know. The great Arab histories were largely written during the Abbasid period, and they don't focus on the conquered communities. So we're left to draw conclusions from the smattering of evidence that we can find. It seems that the Greek speakers of Syria were the quickest to disappear. As we just saw with Theodore Abu Kura, by 800, even committed Christians were writing to one another in Arabic. By 900, they all seemed to be. Even the patriarchs of Antioch and Alexandria write official letters to one another in Arabic. This is partly a reflection of the changing political geography of the region. The Mediterranean was the centre of Roman life. But once Baghdad was founded, the Mediterranean became a backwater within the caliphate. So the coastal cities began to decline, and Greek became irrelevant as a language of government. Aramaic and Syriac took longer to shrink. For those living a very rural life, there was less incentive to change. But slowly over time, patronage links extended down into the countryside, and the temptation of adapting became stronger. Coptic survived the longest for obvious reasons. Egypt is an isolated place. The long strip of the Nile is surrounded by desert on every side, which helped preserve the Coptic identity for centuries. Certainly in 800, there are almost no references to the Arabs or mosques in the texts which survive from the south. Over time that would change, but the native Christian community survived in large numbers well into the 13th and 14th century when persecution by the Mamluks forced many to convert. I think it's worth pausing on conversion for a moment and discussing what we know. 
The best evidence we have suggests that the majority of early converts to Islam were either prisoners of war or poor rural peasants. In both cases, their prime motive was economic. Soldiers captured by the caliphate were often allowed to continue their career, but were posted to some other part of the empire, while non-combatants were usually sold as domestic slaves. In either situation, it made sense to adopt the religion of your masters in order to better your prospects and those of your children. I mentioned in the last episode that by the time of the civil war, which Abd al-Malik won, many of the combatants were non-Arabs. These might be former Romans or former Persians or from some other group who had thrown in their lot with the conquerors. In order to continue reaping the benefits of this life, they quickly Arabized and Islamicized. Within a generation or two, their children would grow up believing they were ethnically Arab and deserved the rewards God was offering them. A similar scenario developed for poor farmers across the caliphate. As you probably know, the Arab administrators levied two kinds of taxes on the indigenous population, a land tax and a poll tax. During the 7th century, the land tax was assessed and collected largely as it had been under Roman rule. The poll tax, known as the jizya, was a per-head tax on the male non-Muslim population. This was new and greatly resented by those already struggling to make ends meet. In Roman times, those facing bankruptcy might flee to a monastery to escape their burdens. But now, the obvious place to go was the nearest garrison town. These new settlements were awash with cash. The soldiers needed servants and stable hands, cooks and cleaners. There were opportunities for businesses of all kinds, but the garrison towns were meant to be exclusively Muslim, so the new arrivals rapidly converted in order to assimilate. As long as you learned Arabic, Islam was a very welcoming and open religion. At this stage, it had no priesthood. It had an open, democratic feel about it. We have stories of men getting up to preach to their brethren and being pelted with pebbles if their audience disagreed with their sermon. The towns were filled with excitement and opportunity, and the message of Islam was that all believers were equal before God, and the world was theirs for the taking. It was an intoxicating combination. Those who didn't convert were therefore those who had a stable way of life. Those with large farms or established occupations in the cities. Those who could afford to pay the jizya. The famous poll tax was not the only thing distinguishing the Christians from their Muslim rulers. In the decades following Abd al-Malik's initial reforms, law codes were developed about what Christians could and couldn't do within the caliphate. Eventually it was ruled that they could not build new churches, could not give testimony in court against a Muslim, and of course were not allowed to defame Islam. Interestingly, these restrictions were borrowed from Roman law, as they were all rules which had been directed against the empire's Jews. The poor Jewish community, of course, were also subject to the same rules, as always. It's just that their betters had now changed. 
More restrictions came from Persian rules about different classes. So soon Christians were not allowed to wear the same hats, coats, belts, shoes or hairstyles as Muslims, all of which had been restrictions on the lower classes in Sasanid society. It's very hard to answer listener AF's question about whether these lands were majority Christian in the year 800. Egypt surely was, but I can't confidently speak about Syria or Palestine. Probably at this point, yes, but the decline had begun. Listener SHS asks when these people stopped thinking of themselves as Roman. Again, difficult to answer. Based on the literature which survived, it seems that fairly rapidly the Monophysite communities distanced themselves from their Roman identity. They had, of course, been struggling with the authorities for a century or more before Islam appeared. Now there was little point in waiting for the Byzantines to return, and so what mattered on a daily basis was to strengthen their own native identity as a Christian community. For the Melkites, the picture is more blurry. As we saw in the narrative, John of Damascus, sitting in a thoroughly orthodox monastery near Jerusalem, could spend the 740s vigorously debating the issue of iconoclasm. He clearly felt himself still part of the Roman world, but increasingly I think this was a view at odds with reality. Melkite Christians could go on separating themselves by faith from the rest of the caliphate, but I don't think they could maintain a Romanness for very long. Daily life had to be lived within Islamic civilization, in Arabic. And that culture was bound to make a lasting impression on those left behind. An example of this is the relationship of the remaining patriarchs of Antioch, Alexandria and Jerusalem. Uh, as you know, the ecumenical councils held in Byzantium uh, happened in 680, 692, 754, and 787. I won't go into each one, but the attendance of men from the East varied significantly. Sometimes the patriarchs did travel in person and attend. More often they sent representatives, and at times no one could make it, and the patriarch in Constantinople simply appointed men to stand in for them. This happened in 787 under Tarasius, and the eastern prelates complained. They were in a difficult position. They no longer had much political power to use to influence proceedings, and yet they still wanted to be part of a universal Christian church. A sign of things to come happened in 797 when Charlemagne sent an embassy to the Patriarch of Jerusalem. As part of his great Christianizing mission, Charles offered to help the Patriarch maintain the holy places in the city. This was quite the grandstanding gesture, as the implication was that the Byzantines could no longer offer protection, and so he would. The Patriarch bypassed Constantinople and gladly accepted the Frankish king's cash. Benedictine monks from the west soon arrived to set up monasteries there, which could provide facilities for pilgrims. The former Eastern Romans had to look after their own interests. They couldn't wait for the empire anymore. Listener AF, though, asks about the Byzantine perspective on the Eastern lands, 
did they still consider them temporarily lost and hope to regain them? I think we have to differentiate between what people hope and what people deal with every day. I mean, I think a lot of you listening hope for some kind of democracy to triumph over tyranny in various parts of the world, but the reality of making that come about is quite different. It doesn't stop you from wanting it, but your daily behavior probably does little to change the status quo. That's how I perceive the Byzantine attitude. They still believed they were the bearers of Christian civilization, so eventually those Eastern Christians should come back into the emperor's care. But the daily reality was that the Taurus Mountains were being stripped of settlements to make them harder to traverse. That sense of universal mission was also affected by the dispute over icons. Minds focused on the purity of the existing Christian body tend to think less about those living outside it. Uh, several listeners asked questions about iconoclasm. Listener S said, did the monophysites have any influence on the development of iconoclasm? Not that I'm aware of, would be my answer. I'm sure there is a monophysite tradition about representations of the divine. And as I mentioned during the discussions about Constantine V's council in 754, the emperor pointed out that to present Jesus in an image as being fully divine would suggest monophysite belief, hence why icons were a bad idea. But I'm not aware of direct monophysite influence on the political course of Byzantine iconoclasm. Uh, listener PC asks, what was the view from the caliphate about the icons? Do any of the Arab sources mention what was going on in Byzantium? Uh, it's an interesting question, and I, I don't speak Arabic, so I rely entirely on books in English which discuss this context, and as far as I know, the Arab histories do not mention iconoclasm except in passing reference to some of the emperors involved. In part, this is because it was an internal Christian dispute which was not really the subject of any Islamic book of the period. Also, in part, because Islamic historians tend to chronicle the story of the caliphate and don't delve too deeply into events going on in other realms. And this is not unique to them, of course. Roman historians took an interest in who was monarch of Persia, but knew very little about the details and certainly even less about the histories of barbarian peoples. Uh, what I can do today in the spirit of those questions is try to give you an update on how the Arabs and Byzantines view each other based on the 8th century writing, which survives. Okay, so Theophanes does chronicle events within the caliphate, albeit briefly, uh, and vice versa. The change from one emperor to another gets mentioned in the major Arab histories. But in neither case uh, does that tell us much about what one side thought of the other. You may remember that at the end of the last century, the Romans seemed to have little understanding of what Islam was. Uh, it was becoming clear that the Arabs were not Christians nor Jews, but their beliefs were not yet clearly articulated enough to come across the border in an understandable form. By 800, this had changed somewhat. Now, I can't speak for your average Anatolian farmer, but at least amongst the Byzantine elites, Islam had taken on a definite shape. One of the interesting things to survive is an exchange of letters just after the siege between Leo III and the new caliph Umar II. 
Now, whether these letters are real, we're not sure, but they still give us an indication of the understanding of the situation around this time. Umar picks up the practice of the original caliphs, who upon their elevation would write to neighbouring kings to ask for a statement of their beliefs. The point being that the caliph could then refute these and invite them to accept Islam. Umar is supposed to have asked why, since the death of Jesus, the Christians had split into 70 different races. Why they professed belief in three gods, and why they adored the bones of saints and pictures and crosses. Christians, in other words, were disunited, polytheistic, and idolatrous. Leo's reply accepts that Umar's faith is based on the same Old Testament that his is, and points out that the Kaaba is not mentioned in its pages. He defends Jesus by pointing out that many holy men have attested to Christ's divinity, whereas none have come forward for Muhammad. He also makes the argument that Islam is just as divided as Christianity is. However, Christian arguments are usually between these different nations, who understandably squabble for cultural reasons, whereas Islam's divisions are between Arabs and other Arabs, which doesn't say much for the strength of Islam's message. This sort of back-and-forth exchange, whoever really wrote it, probably is reflective of the type of thoughts that educated Romans and Muslims had about one another during the 8th century. But how many in Constantinople really understood Islam is difficult to tell. Slightly beyond 800, we find more texts like this. A certain Nicetus, who worked in the capital, got his hands on a Greek translation of the Quran and wrote a scholarly refutation of it. It's thoroughly polemical stuff. He speaks of the most pitiful and the most inept little book of the Arab Muhammad, full of blasphemies against the Most High, with all its ugly and vulgar filth. As could so easily happen, portions of the text are poorly translated, leading to various misunderstandings. Another text that survived is a ritual for a Muslim to go through in converting to Christianity. Presumably this was encouraged amongst prisoners of war who then settled in Byzantium or the like. It has a long list of things which the convert must deny or anathemize, including Muhammad. But the wording was clear that the two faiths shared the same God, and the supplicant must not therefore be asked to refute the God of the Muslims. These are all snippets, of course. We have no detailed ethnographic description of the Arabs, their customs and their beliefs from a Byzantine point of view. Earlier Roman writers had occasionally catalogued their barbarian neighbours. Tacitus famously wrote about the Germans, and even Procopius gave pretty sympathetic portraits of the Goths and Vandals as Justinian defeated them. Plenty of men would have been in a good position to write one, and yet none seems to have. Historian Antony Caldellis has a theory on why. He points out that the Arabs don't fit the norms of Roman history writing. Almost all foreign peoples are described as a mirror to the Romans themselves. Their superstitions and lack of civilization are documented to underline Roman superiority. 
but they are often praised for their bravery, strength, honesty, or valour, often qualities which the historian wishes to use to chide the Romans of his own day for lacking. The Arabs cannot be dismissed in this way. Their beliefs may be heretical, but they are clearly not foolish superstition, given their shared origin. The Arab civilization cannot be favorably compared to Rome's either. The reality was the Arabs were richer, stronger, and soon would have far greater claims to civilization than the Byzantines. Often in the histories, authors would put speeches into the mouths of enemy commanders before great battles. Caldellis theorizes that any Byzantine author would have found it too painful, or perhaps just too confusing, to try and elaborate what a Muslim commander might say to his troops before they defeated a Christian army. Now that the theodicy of Roman conflict had shifted to the idea of God punishing or rewarding his chosen people, the Arabs could be reduced to mere instruments of his will. Like a flood or an earthquake, it was perhaps better to portray them as faceless tools rather than a distinct human force. What about the Arab side of things, though? How did they view the Romans? Again, we get a lack of detail and a sense that the Romans were now playing the role of barbarians holding up a mirror to the virtuous Islamic image. One chronicler lists the four great kings of the world, the Chinese, the Indian, and the Roman. Above them all is the Caliph in Baghdad. The Romans are known for their resilience. One writer describes them as a many-headed hydra. Every time a head is cut off, another grows back. Another writer says that they possess knowledge of alchemy, or possessed some other esoteric knowledge for gaining great wealth. Both those ideas seem to reflect Arab surprise at the ability of the Byzantines to continue standing against them despite constant defeat. Over time, we get more references to specific Byzantine traits. They are often accused of lacking honour and being duplicitous. They use spies to discover our weaknesses and invade our lands. They break truces. All of these have a ring of truth about them, but sound typical of the stronger army sneering at the tactics of the weaker one. Arab commentators were understandably disgusted with the practice of castration. This was not prescribed in any of their laws, and as the victims of it could be Muslim children taken as slaves, it was particularly hated. Later writers would commend Roman achievements in architecture, art, and music. However, the Arabs were quick to point out all of the ways that they had surpassed them. Byzantine stuffed foods were praised, and several of the cooks, uh, given credit in the Thousand and One Nights, were slave girls of Roman origin. Into the ninth century, as the Abbasid scholars began to translate the work of the ancient Greeks, they were full of praise for their wisdom and intelligence, but that inevitably drew comparison with the state of modern Byzantium, which was not flattering. Soon, though, as we search through the sources, we drift into commentary which may not reflect reality at all, but could just be literary techniques designed to praise Muslim virtues. 
For example, the Romans were renowned misers, who didn't even have a word in their language for the term generosity. Ridiculous, obviously, and not coincidentally, being generous was considered a great Islamic virtue. The Byzantines were apparently known for their beauty. They were the most attractive people around, especially their women, the best of whom were blonde with blue eyes. In fact, beware of Byzantine women. They were notoriously promiscuous and would make cuckolds of the Arab men they seduced. No wonder so many Byzantines joined monasteries rather than face such humiliation. Again, this probably reflects very little about reality. I was particularly interested in the blonde, blue-eyed part, a highly unlikely look for a woman of Eastern Anatolia, you would think. But there you go. The Byzantines as the other could be a rich source of such stories. Whatever the folk tales said, the Romans were understood to be the only true enemies of the caliphate still standing. When we come to talk about military matters in a few episodes' time, we'll get more information on how the Arabs thought about their most implacable foe. Occasionally, the Arab historians display a pretty solid grasp of Byzantine politics. One 9th century geographer says that the emperor maintains power over the military and taxation, and that there is no formal succession. He notes that anyone can rule, even a woman, only strength counts. That's pretty insightful and a succinct bit of commentary. Accounts of specific events tend to be less accurate. Interestingly, there is little comment on Irene's gender in recalling her time on the throne. Instead, everything is seen through the lens of the caliphate's importance. So Irene is praised because she understood her place and made peace. Her son Constantine was a foolish warmonger, who she was forced to blind because she feared the wrath of Harun al-Rashid. So Roman actions are only understood in terms of their relationship to the caliphate. Other considerations don't get recorded in the official annals. That's it for this episode. Next time, we'll be back home in Byzantium, going over a tour of the provinces, checking out the people, the administration, and eventually the army. <laughs>